You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Thank you so much, worshippers, leading us this morning. Well, it's my privilege this morning to help us to continue in this series in the book of James, Faith that works as we have called it. And in just a moment, we're going to read in James chapter 2 this morning. Before we get to that, I just want to clear something up today because someone asked a question this week which made us realize there'd maybe been a little bit of confusion and some question about Mary's conduct because there were some questions about how come James is a half-brother of Jesus. And uh, was there some things that we hadn't understood from the Bible? So let me make it really clear, just in case there's been some misunderstanding, that Jesus was born to Mary. Mary was a virgin, as we hear every Christmas. She conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had an earthly mother and a heavenly father. And because Mary was betrothed to be married to Joseph, although they'd had no union, Jesus also had an earthly father, Joseph. But biologically, he only had an earthly mother and a heavenly father. James, however, came along next. So after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary consummated their marriage in the usual way, conceived in the usual way, and gave birth to James, who then was of the same mother, but of a different father, and therefore is the half-brother of Jesus. I hope that's okay. I hope we're all on the same page. There's no other, there's no other uh, instances, nothing else that went on. It's nothing more complex than that. That is how James comes to be, the half-brother of Jesus. You know, if one person asks the question, you know other people are thinking it. So you've got to go there and just make sure we've not taught something incorrectly from the pulpit here. And so here we have this book of James, the half-brother of Jesus who in Jesus' lifetime wasn't at all sure who Jesus was and whether Jesus was who he said he was. And yet, after Jesus' death and resurrection, we know James played such a significant role bringing leadership in the church in Jerusalem, being one of the pillars of the early church, and here, writing to the church, positioning himself at the very start as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ a servant to his half-brother. It shows you that something incredible and glorious had gone on in his heart of revelation. So let's turn to his words this morning. We're going to read James chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. 
Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Well, we're just going to read the first half of James chapter 2 this morning because in the first week of this series, two weeks ago, Dr. John, in his introduction, took us to the second half of chapter 2. He unpacked that really in trying to bring us the essence of the book of James, the overarching big picture message. He took us to those verses talking about faith without deeds being dead or useless. If you haven't yet listened to the podcast from that week, then please do go onto our website, click on podcasts, find Dr. John's um, message, Faith Has a Face, and have a listen to it. It will help you as we continue in this series. So really, we're understanding that in this series, Faith That Works, that if we have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, it will do something. There will be something visible. It will be seen in how we live. It will be seen in how we behave. That in the words of Dr. John, faith has a face. Or as he said it in his wonderful accent, faith has a face. <laughs> faith has a face. And he unpacked these verses for us. He helped us to understand how there must be a visual sign of our faith. There must be something of an outworking. Now, we understand, of course, don't we, that we're not trying to behave a certain way to earn righteousness from God, to earn salvation, to earn a way in, or feel like somehow we can reach God's threshold. Because we've already understood we can't reach God's standard in our fallenness and our brokenness. We understand, as we've already remembered this morning, we are saved by the wonderful sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross his perfect life given for us. We have been made righteous by him. But as Martin Luther, the seminal figure in the Protestant Reformation said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. What he's saying is a genuine work of saving faith in our lives will be the beginning of something, not the end. There'll be other things that follow as an outworking, and there'll be evidence that something has gone on in our lives. Our faith will have a face. So today, as we look at these verses in chapter 2, 1 to 13, we find James raising a specific subject. He's talking to us. He's beginning to broach a subject about what sort of face is on our faith. And probably in your Bible, as in mine, there's a chapter heading, it says, favoritism is forbidden. It's about favoritism, partiality. 
Now, I've got to say, James starts off here talking about favoritism, which is really accessible and kind of a surface behavior that we can all equate to, probably all feel we've suffered from at some point when someone else was treated better than us. Or maybe that's just me. There was, no, there was no kind of like witness in the room then. I was like, oh, that's just me. That's my issue. I'll deal with that later. Um, <laughs> but James sets off here. But then it's a little bit like a roller coaster ride that very quickly dips down into something much deeper and much more far reaching. And in fact, the scope of this passage is vast. It probes into the depths of our hearts, it reaches into the expanse of eternity. And it's going to call us again to fathom the ocean the ocean depths of the mercy of Jesus Christ and summon us to dive deeper into it than we've ever dived before. So if I can invite us to fasten our seatbelts and really to help us to navigate this, I'm going to bring us simply this morning two questions and an answer. Two questions and an answer. So first up, this is a question that I think is at the root of what James is talking to us about. And it's this, which seat are you sitting in? Which seat are you sitting in? You see, James, he's beginning to talk to us about favoritism. Let me give us a little bit of a definition here of what favoritism is. It says this, to make a distinction in favor of or against a person or thing on a basis of the group, class, or category to which the person or thing belongs, rather than according to merit. This is favoritism. And James is saying, as followers of the Lord Jesus, you should not do this. This shouldn't be part of what's going on. And he gives us this example. He says, suppose someone comes into your meeting. Suppose someone turns up on a Sunday morning. He says, one is in fine clothes and a gold ring. We can read between the lines that it's like, this is someone in Armani jeans with a Rolex watch. They've just parked in the car park in a BMW, and you've watched them come in. You know the sort of person this is. And he says, at the same time, there's someone coming, and they're in shabby clothes. It looks like maybe they've slept rough. Maybe they could use a shower. But they both arrive, walking in from the car park entrance at the same time. I know this sounds like a scenario for stewardship training, stewarding training. This isn't training for our stewarding team. This isn't really about seats, but it is about how we look at people, how we judge people, how we make a decision about what we're going to give to those that we see in front of us. James is calling out something that is in our hearts, in the heart of every single one of us here this morning. You see, for all of us, when we see someone, we make a judgment about them. How they look, how they're dressed, how they carry themselves, how they present themselves. And we decide whether we will treat them favorably or not. We make some decisions about how we're going to engage with them because of what we see. We decide whether we're going to move towards them or withdraw away from them. Whether we'll welcome them or whether we hope they'll go away. Whether we're gonna serve them, whether we'll go and get them a drink, or whether we'll leave them to do that for themselves or hope someone else might do that instead. James is drawing attention to what goes on in our hearts. You know, it's not wrong to notice some things. It's not wrong to see what's going on in the person in front of you. It's not wrong to see there's someone who may have need, but what's wrong is when we make a decision, therefore, about what we will 
or will not give to them or do for them because of the conclusions that we're drawing. But it's so common in our world to judge people. It's like it's normal, everybody does it. It's like it's normal to decide in a moment if we think someone has value, whether we think they deserve something from us, whether our time or our attention or our kindness or, or service or, or whatever else we have. We judge people by how we perceive them. Many of you will be familiar with Britain's Got Talent. And many of you will be familiar with a face that's going to come up on the screen in just a moment. You see, in 2009, on the 11th of April, this lady, Susan Boyle, 47-year-old, unemployed Scottish lady, a little overweight and with slightly graying hair, stood on the stage in front of the judges' panel. And she stepped out and they said, what do you, what do, you do? She said, I'm a singer. And you could see the crowd just going, ugh. You can see them like, even like, if you watch the clip on YouTube, they focus in on some people going, oh, this is going to be terrible. You can see them doing this, people rolling their eyes, people laughing at her. And they even ask her, they say, what's your dream? Who would you like to be as big as? I mean, what a horrible question to ask if you're already making a judgment on someone. She said, I'd like to be as big as Elaine Page. And at that point, the audience laugh at her. Audibly, they all laugh at her, and the judges are like going, ugh, this is, let's see what this is. And then the music starts, and most of you in the room, you'll know what happened. Is she began to sing I Dreamed a Dream from Les Miserables, and the room goes wild, because they'd made a judgment from what she looked like as she stood on the stage in front of them, and they had no idea of what precious thing was inside this lady, of what she was able to do in that room, and the emotion of what was released, of everybody's surprise, the, the, the difference in what they got from what they expected, but it was because they'd made a judgment of what could be inside of worth from what they saw on the outside. And you know, we all go through life making judgments like this, and it determines how we interact with people. We determine what they deserve from us, or what we think they deserve from us. And James says, when you do this, when you treat people differently because of how you judge them, he says, you discriminate. You discriminate. And he says, and these are strong words, he says, you become judges with evil thoughts. We kind of think, you know, sometimes I judge people and I need to stop doing that. It would be better if I was a bit less critical. James is way more strong. He says, when you do this, you discriminate and you become judges with evil thoughts. The word evil here, it could just as easily say bad or wicked or opposed to God. Wow. And it brings me back to this question that I've asked, which, which seat are you sitting in? You see, when you make a call about someone and when you make a judgment and you're deciding what that person deserves, you're becoming a judge. You're sitting yourself in the judge's seat. Many of us probably have had experiences of some sort of courtroom. Good experience, bad experiences, some indifferent. And we'll, we'll know that in, in a courtroom there are many seats. There are different roles to be played in a courtroom, but there's many different seats. But there's only one judge's seat. In fact, and I'm not sure that there's anyone in this congregation who functions as a judge, and therefore there's no one in this room, if we were to go into a court today, who would have the right to sit in the judge's seat. We could go in and we could find a seat there, but not 
in the judge's seat. What James is saying is when you show favoritism, you are presumptuous and you take a seat that is not your own as though you are the judge. You put yourself in the judge's seat and he said that is not fitting for a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, he goes on through the chapter to explain to us quite clearly that there is only one lawgiver and one judge. James 4 verse 12, we're not going to read into James 4 today. He says there's only one lawgiver and there's only one judge. And I don't know if you've realized, but it isn't you. And it isn't me. There's one judge and the seat belongs to him. The judge's seat is not our seat. In fact, as James carries on in the verses that we read today, James tells us where our seat is. He tells us in verse 12 of chapter 2, speak and act as those who are going to be judged. Our seat is with those who will be judged by the judge. See, at the heart of this question of favoritism, it's which seat are you sitting in? Which seat are you trying to position yourself in? Are you trying to preside in the judge's seat over other people? James is trying to remind us here, we're meant to be becoming like Jesus in character, not trying to take his seat. We're trying to look like him, not take his place. You may have heard the saying that many want to serve God, but only in an advisory capacity. There's many of us think we could sneak in alongside in the seat and give him a little help. He doesn't need any help, my friends. It's not wise to try and take his seat, but rather we must live as those who will be judged by him, not trying to sit in his seat. When we led a young adults ministry a few years ago in, in a different town, we had an evening when a new girl joined us and uh, throughout the entire evening, uh, she was miserable, she was withdrawn, she went out at least once, maybe several times for a cigarette. Uh, she looked like she hated being there. That was the vibe she gave off. I was like, I don't know who's brought you, I don't know why you've come, but you seem to hate being here, so maybe it'd be good if you didn't come back. That's what I felt inside. So you look like you hate it here, so I don't know how we can help you. My instinct was to judge her, to move away from her, to let her stay in her withdrawn place. But the Holy Spirit's been working in my heart and he's been teaching me to get out of the judge's seat and get myself back where I should be. And so I called her. And do you know what? She came again and again and again. And she kept coming. And over time, I got to know her story. You know, things change when you find out someone's story. As it's been said before, it's hard to hate someone whose pain you know. You see, the thing with this girl, her mom had died from cancer when she was a teenager. And in her grief, she'd misused alcohol and become alcoholic. I think she was only about 22 when we met her. She'd become dependent upon alcohol. She'd then also been to Alcoholics Anonymous and managed to get herself dry, but continued to be broken and working through many issues. But as time went on, she connected to Jesus. She began to get whole. 
She actually became very passionate about Jesus and found a hunger for reading the Bible, ended up going to Mattersea Bible College, did a theology degree, led baptism teaching, then went on and led a life group. I don't actually know what she's doing now, but I know she had a teaching gift on her life which became apparent in the fullness of time. What would have happened if I'd stayed in the judge's seat? She'd have come in and gone out and we wouldn't have seen her again. I don't know where she might be today if that were the case. And as we allow James to speak to us this morning, the question comes to us, which seat are you sitting in? Which seat are you sitting in? Which seat do I find myself sitting in? Because many of us, most of us maybe will know that sometimes, if not always, we creep towards the judge's seat. But we'll never treat people right from there. We need to slide down off the seat and take our place with those who will be judged, for that is the right place. And then we'll be ready to engage with people again. And from there we can consider what else James says to us this morning through these verses. So question number one, which seat are you sitting in? The second question that I think comes through these verses this morning, James asks, whose law are you living by? Whose law are you living by? Now he starts off, he's talking about this rich person and this poor person. And he said, if you treat them differently according to that, which law are you living by? Whose law is that? He says, if you're doing that, you're judging them by the world's law. You're living by the world's law, by the world's standards and values, because they value the wealthy. They think they're worth more than the poor. And we see that, don't we, in our world. The poor get ignored and the wealthy get honored. But James is saying, if you're living like that, it's the world's law you're living by. James wants us to understand why this is such an issue. He said, when you ignore the poor, then you're not living by God's law. Because he says this in verse 5, God has chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom he promised. He says, when you follow the world's law and live by that, when you judge the poor or you judge others, what you actually end up doing is ignoring, overlooking, or discriminating against those very ones whom God has chosen to work with. The very ones. Because they don't fit into the world's mold. And James talks to us about the rich and the poor, but the truth is there's thousands of different ways that we can discriminate. Age, gender, race, how we dress, where we shop. Is it Sainsbury's or Aldi? The world looks for many things. It looks for status and success, for letters after our name, for titles before it, but those are the world's law. The truth is each one of us can have our own slightly tailored law according to how we view the world and what we think should be valued. We can be a law unto ourselves. The judgments that we make give away the law that we're living by. And James says the problem is when you judge the poor is you live by the world's law. And when you do that, you rule out the very ones that God has chosen. That means you're actually becoming obstructive to the purposes of God. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29, Paul writes, it's not just the poor that God has chosen. It says, it says God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
He chose the lowly things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. In fact, pretty much all the things that the law of the world would say are valuable, Paul says, he chose the opposite. God chose. He moves towards the opposite. And this is the problem because the root of favoritism sets us in opposition to God and how he works. It has us living by a different law. And James goes on really to help us here to understand that to do right, to have the right face to our faith, the law we should be living by is the royal law, as he calls it. And why is it called the royal law? No one knows for sure why he calls it the royal law, but perhaps because the king of kings, he's the one who spoke it. It was obviously spoken in scripture long before, but Jesus talked about this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here James is saying, if you want to know what the polar opposite of is of favoritism, it's this. It's love your neighbor as yourself. James here pointing, echoing Jesus' teaching as he does so many times through this book. You see, the royal law says, my neighbor is anyone that I come across to whom I might be able to show mercy, who might have a need that I might be able to meet. James is suggesting that whenever we meet someone with need, we should be seeing how we can help them, how we can love them. Not that we should be feeling something emotional. That's not how we love ourselves. We love ourselves by giving the care attention, doing the practical things that are needed to stay well and stay healthy. This is how we should seek to love those around us who have need. That we might actively look and pay attention and see what we can practically do. Like the Good Samaritan in the story when Jesus talked about this, when he was asked questions about who is my neighbor. This royal law Love your neighbor as yourself. It says it's okay to recognize the need. Of course you'll see the need in people, but don't judge the need, meet the need. This is the royal law, the law we should be living by. Now maybe you could ask today, how come we're talking about the law again? It's like, I thought we'd understood that we weren't under law anymore. Romans 6 says we're not under law, but we're under grace. And that's true. We're saved by grace. I'm going to keep saying it. We're not trying to do something different. We're not trying to live by the law again so that we can achieve something, so that we can fulfill what God asks us to do so we can have the box ticked and hit the standard and earn salvation. We cannot do that. But just because the law isn't our means to be saved, it doesn't mean that the law isn't important. It isn't of value. James wrote this letter to a Jewish church who for many centuries, part of their identity had been the law they'd been given under Moses. In its simplest form, the Ten Commandments. Most of us will know something about those. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't covet, don't misuse God's name, don't worship other gods or have idols, keep the Sabbath holy, honor your father and your mother. And we can sometimes think, that law is all about hitting the standard. It's about behaving right, and that's why it was given, and there's part of that. But you know, the law primarily was given to the people of Israel that they might understand the nature of God. The law was given that they might see 
what the invisible looks like. That they would understand the God that they couldn't see. They couldn't approach the mountain where God was because they were not holy. And the way that they could most learn that God was holy was to understand and try to live by the law that he gave them. You see, they were meant to be becoming a people that were like him. We're meant to be holy like he is holy. We're meant to be growing to reflect what God is like. And I know we've used some of this language as we talk about these words from James and faith having a face, but the truth is that right back centuries before, when God gave a law through Moses, he was calling out a people to be his own who were meant to look like him. They were meant to be growing to become like him. They were meant to be reflecting something of what he was like, not so he could have his own little people in a little land set apart, but so the other nations would see it. Say, that's what it looks like. That's what the God of Israel looks like. I can see it because I see them. I can see his holiness because I see it in them. I see that they behave differently and they worship differently and their lives are different and their marriages are different. That must be because of what their God is like. The law is given to show the nature. And it's for us to live by it so that we show the nature too. So we have the face that should go with that faith. James is reminding them. He reminds us all this morning that even though that's the glorious purpose of God's law, that we all are lawbreakers sometimes, we all choose to disobey. I mean, which one of us has never lied? Did you enjoy the meal? <laughs> Do you like my new jumper? Ooh, we could go on. We'll leave it there. Now, James says this. It seems harsh when James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. He's saying if you break some of the law, you've broken the whole law. And we can find that, that seems harsh, like, hey, look, I'm doing my best here. Or maybe I'm not doing my best. Maybe I do my best some days, and some days, frankly, I just choose to do my own thing. It's probably nearer the truth for most of us. You see, what James is saying is the law, it's not about just trying to attain to something or do your best, but the law is there to help us reflect the image of God. The law is there for us to live by so that when we do that, we show something of who he is. And so whenever there's a part of it that we don't manage to do, it's not just this bit of it that we've messed up on, but the picture is distorted. It's, if you like, the image of God like a picture painted on a window, on a pane of glass. And when one bit is fractured, then it kind of distorts the whole. And so when we choose not to live by the law in one aspect, we change the whole picture of the God who we're trying to represent. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the people around your life, they know the name of your God. They know the name that he goes by. Maybe because you've told it them. Maybe because they've just heard it. They know his name, but they're trying to put a face to the name. They're trying to put a face to the name, but you know all they've got to go on is your face. 
It's the face of your faith. That's what they've got to go on. That's how they're understanding the image of God. That's how they're understanding the nature of God. It's by what you are walking in and showing to them. And so James reminds us and asks us, whose law are you living by? Whose image are you trying to represent to the world? Is your face the face of the world? Is it your own expression? Are you just being a law unto yourself? Or are you trying to live by God's law and to show what he is like? James brings us the uncomfortable reminder that we're called to live by this royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says that alongside the first commandment, of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Together, those two, they sum up the whole of the law and the prophets. And you know what happened when Jesus took on flesh and walked on the earth? He fulfilled the law. It says of him, doesn't it, that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And of course, if the law is there to help us show what God is like, then it makes sense that if God puts on flesh and comes and walks in it, he's going to do it fully. Freely, gloriously, beautifully, magnificently, and show us what he looks like. It's why Colossians can write, he is the image of the invisible God. We see God in the law fulfilled, walked out in Jesus Christ. That's all gone a bit deep. But the truth is we're called to do the same, to live by his law and to show what he is like. You know, before we moved here, I was involved in mentoring some ladies who were recovering from drug addiction. I use the word recovering loosely. They were, uh, they were all users of methadone, which is a heroin substitute. And my role was simply as a volunteer to, to mentor them, to come alongside them. The first lady that I mentored, she'd been an addict for many, many years. She'd worked on the streets to feed her habit. But when I met her, she was stuck. She didn't go out. She didn't know anyone in the city we lived in. She was afraid to go out on her own anyhow. She was living in a house with a partner who didn't love her, and she knew that he didn't love her, but she was too broken, really, and too stuck to make any decisions or do anything different. And I met with her, and I guess simply sought to live by a different law. to go and meet her and try and take her to some places where she might be able to go herself or meet some people that might be the kind of people she might go and meet herself. And over time, she built confidence and she did begin to go out by herself and eventually began making some decisions for herself again. The other two ladies that I met with, they had different practical needs. One of them, their house was such a state that social services were involved and there were questions about whether her children would be allowed to keep living in the house. So loving my neighbor meant rolling up my sleeves and cleaning a really, really dirty house. But you know what happened with each of these three ladies? I think it was either the second or third time I met them. Every single one of them said, why are you doing this? Why are you here in my home? Why are you helping me? Because they knew that there was a different law that had just broken into their lives to the law that they normally receive from everybody in the world. They were seeing a different face to any face they'd ever seen before because something different was going on in their world and it was simply because I was living by a different law. 
showing them something different. And what it began to do was give opportunity for them to see the God who loved them. To see that there was one who cared for them, who loved them, who had not forgotten them and abandoned them. In spite of all their terrible choices, he still wanted to go after them. You know, none of them were in a position to make an immediate response to Christ. All of them struggled to just make decisions about today. But they saw something of the face of Christ in someone going and loving them and meeting them. So James brings us to these two questions this morning. Which seat are you sitting in? Whose law are you living by? I understand these are uncomfortable questions this morning. It's important that we don't stop at the questions, but we come through to an answer. I know, you know, we can see that there's wrong in our hearts. We can acknowledge our tendency to judge others. We, we can be reminded again this morning that we are those who will be judged. That we're called to live by a law that we struggle to attain to. So I'm so glad that James doesn't stop there, but he carries on to the end of these verses and brings us this truth that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says, verses 12 and 13, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, there will be judgment for you and for me. If you were to read on to the beginning of James 3, you'd read that actually it'll be stricter for me. It says those who teach the word will be judged more strictly. Wow. Maybe I should just sit down now. It might be wise. But James, you know, before James hits this glorious point of mercy triumphing over judgment, he, he's trying to link this all together here and reminds us, echoing Jesus' words again, that we have to not judge or we will be judged. He says, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. These are Jesus' words. You see, friends, the truth is that we can't separate out the measure of mercy we receive from the measure of mercy we give. We can't receive with one measure and give with another. We can't withhold on the one hand but freely receive on the other. They are inseparable. But just as this same place where James is almost piling on the pressure to us, he comes through and he says, but mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, mercy is compassion to someone in need. It's a word that's used particularly to describe God's compassion in meeting our need. In the midst of James painting a difficult picture for us this morning that shows us our own desperate need against the backdrop of the truth that we will be judged. Understanding there's plenty of evidence stacked up against us that our hearts give us away, our favoritism gives us away, our discrimination gives us away, our lack of love for others gives us away, our failure and refusal to live how God has asked us to live gives us away. When we look at Jesus' life and how different it is to ours, we know that when we will be judged, we would be found wanting, unable to hit God's standard, poor reflections of his glorious face. 
And yet, mercy triumphs over judgment. We find ourselves worthy to be judged, and yet mercy triumphs. You see, the reason that James begins and says favoritism has no place in the house of God is because really he's beginning where he comes to at the end. He says, you and I were those poor men, poor women. I was the beggar who walked into God's house. I was the person who staggered in with nothing, who deserved nothing. And he didn't show favoritism. He could have looked the other way and said, this one's better. This one's more together. This one's got more going. This one's wiser. This one's more holy. But he didn't. He didn't show favoritism. Friends, when you walk through the door, when I walk through the door, he saw our desperate need. He saw our rags and filth. And he walked towards us. He walked towards us, arms outstretched, and poured out everything he had to meet our need. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I hope you hear it this morning, that mercy triumphs over judgment in my life, in your life. So how could we have favoritism in the house? How could we treat someone else so differently from how we've been treated? How could we withhold from someone else the assurance that mercy can triumph over their judgment when it has triumphed over mine? We cannot withhold it. And so the call is to live free, full lives, pouring out the mercy of God into those that we meet. Mercy triumphs over judgment. His mercy is our answer. His mercy is our comfort. His mercy is our hope. His mercy is the way. Not that we will suddenly start to feel love for people in whom we see desperate need. Don't go looking for an emotional feeling here. You may get it. If you get it, God's definitely speaking to you to do something in that situation. You may not feel anything. You may just see their need. And loving your neighbor says, I'll go towards it. I'll go towards it. I'll go towards it. So how do we respond to this this morning? Friend, of the band's like, band are going to come and but do come back up and, and be ready to help us as we respond this morning. I'm conscious some of what I've brought is, is deep. It can make us feel a sense of not, not being enough, of, of a judgment to come. And maybe we just need to come again and say, Lord, I, I know that I judge and I need to say sorry. And I need to repent again and bow down before you. Maybe for some of us, we just need to come again and maybe we're already really aware that we need God's mercy. And there's mercy here to receive again this morning, to receive from him that you're forgiven, that you're welcome, that he loves you, that he knows you've got need still. He knows you've got brokenness still, but he comes to meet you there. He's not waiting for you to get sorted first. And that maybe also as we respond this morning, reconnect to his heart say Lord help me to keep drawing from your great ocean of mercy that I might pour it out to others 
and show the face that you would show to the world, that the face that people put to the name of my God would be the right face. I'm going to invite us to stand together. I'm conscious there may be somebody here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You've maybe never heard before that there's mercy and forgiveness. And if you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, you can do that right now before you leave this place. And I'm simply going to invite you, if that's you, just come out of your seat right now and come down to the front and we'll get someone to pray for you. We won't do all of that in front of everybody. But if that's you this morning and you know you need to give your life to Jesus, and come into his house for the first time. Just step out of your seat and come right now. Come to the front. Just come right now if that's you. If you know you need to invite Jesus into your life for the very first time. If you want to come home to him this morning. Just come right now, because then I'm going to move on to facilitate a response for others. But do come if that's you. Don't leave here without receiving God's mercy if that's you. I'm going to open this up wider, but if you are here and you want to give your life to Jesus, you can still do that. Just make your way down to the front. I'm aware there are others this morning, and you want to come down to the front, and you need to bow down just to receive mercy again. You may want to just bow down and say, God, I come again. Thank you for your mercy. I'm sorry for where I haven't hit the mark, but I come and receive your grace and your mercy again this morning. I'm just going to invite you right now. Some of you, you want to come to the front, just come, start coming right now. And I'm going to pray and then the band are going to lead us. But step out of your seats right now if you want to come and just respond to him in this moment. pray together. Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment, that we do not need to be afraid about the seat where we find ourselves sitting, for your mercy triumphs. And that we come so conscious again this morning of how far short we fall, of the sin still in our lives, of the rebellion in our hearts, the judging thoughts, and we say sorry, Jesus. And we thank you that even though you see us as we are, you welcome us home and you come towards us to meet our need and to meet us with mercy. And we say thank you this morning. And we come with wide open hearts to say, Lord, would you in your grace fill us again with your forgiveness. Fill us again with your grace and kindness. Fill us again with the assurance of our salvation. Fill us again and help us to go from this place and to live lives that show your face by moving towards need, by bringing mercy again and again and again to impact the world in which we live and work. We thank you, Jesus, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank you so much, Jesus.